The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Hello, everyone. This is Kevin McCullough from the Portfolio Analysis and Consulting Team at Natixis Investment Manager Solutions. I'm joined by my colleague, Mark Santolo, and today we'll be discussing trends in the institutional investing space. Mark, 2023 was an interesting and ultimately positive year in markets, although there was certainly a good amount of volatility and not exactly a linear path to returns. Uh, How did we see different types of institutional players perform against this backdrop? Yes, 2023 was a great year for a lot of different asset classes. And broadly speaking, the path for returns were, I'd say, solid in Q1 and Q2, challenging in Q3, and then incredibly strong to close the year. So this most recent institutional snapshot that we've shown doesn't capture the year-end rally, which was pretty significant. For example, the S&P 500 finished the year up 26%, but was only up around 13% by September 30th. Looking at developed ex-US equities, those were up 7% at September 30th and finished the year up 18%. EM was up 2 finished the year up 10 and there was a really pronounced shift in US small cap, up around 2.5% through 9.30, but finished the year up 17%. So a really strong environment for equity allocations, and less than half of your 2023 returns were booked by Q3 when we pulled this data. Fixed income ended up getting you somewhat of a yield-like return on the year. Credit maybe even a little bit better. Almost comically, the 10-year had the exact same 3.88% yield at year-end 2022 and year-end 2023. But certainly through Q3, duration had been out of favor. So corporate DB plans, which tend to allocate to long-duration fixed income, didn't fare nearly as well as endowments, foundations, Taft-Hartley, and public plans. I'd expect the year-end version of this chart will be better across the board, just given how strong returns were in Q4. And also, corporate plans very likely closed some of the gap here in November and December. You had equities, treasuries, and corporate bonds all producing strong returns simultaneously. We saw a lot of differentiated returns during 2023. While the broad index was up, there were enormous differences in returns between different sectors and styles that gets masked a little bit when you look at the the overall market return. Uh, Obviously, a lot's been made of the Magnificent Seven, those those seven names that kind of dominate the market cap of the index, um, having a really good year. And as those names go, so goes the index. You know, but we've even seen a lot of differentiation in one of the ways that we sort of think about markets that uh, that you know we share with our clients, which is our inflation cyclicality framework, uh, which sort of sets up your positioning and lets you see you know different investments in your overall portfolio in the context of how the underlying industries you own basically perform around upside and downside surprises in both that inflation and that growth backdrop. Yeah, when we're looking at the cyclicality versus inflation plot that we do, we tend to think about the middle of the chart as market expectations and the market pricing being accurate. So then, as you mentioned, those four scenarios represent growth and inflation coming in a lot differently than expected. And I think it's fair to say that the broader market had it wrong at the start of both of the last two years. In January of 2022, the market underappreciated some of the stagflationary forces, namely the depth and duration of the inflation spike and then the scope of monetary policy that um, that was you know shortly ahead of us. That repricing drove returns for the first several months of 2022. Now, January 2023, the market underappreciated the soft landing scenario, which gradually did get priced in over the course of the year. So what does this mean? It means that we saw a ton of return dispersion in both 2022 and 2023. But anytime you have really differentiated returns across you know, the style box or across cyclicality versus inflation, you're going to see active strategies or certain active strategies receiving credit for outperformance or blame for underperformance when it could just be that their style was in favor or out of favor. 
So for example, consider a core slash growth strategy that's classified as blend. That partial tilt toward growth would have been a massive tailwind for returns in 2023 and very likely helped the strategy beat its benchmark even if security selection was neutral or slightly negative. So over the course of the two-year period, we saw 2022's headwinds become 2023's tailwinds and vice versa. So that directional offset of stagflation in 22 and soft landing in 2023 neutralized a lot of this return dispersion. So from my perspective, when you're evaluating the performance of an active manager, looking at that two-year round trip could be pretty interesting to try to think about the full return cycle. If you're looking at either 2022 or 2023 in isolation, you're potentially missing some context. Yeah, it's interesting that we, at least on the retail side, with uh, you know some of the advisor portfolios that you know we consult to and collect, we do see some element of, for lack of a better word, performance chasing with uh, you know some of what the market's pricing in, and then how we see these portfolios positioned. So, for example, you know at the end of uh, 2022, you basically have the market incrementally pricing in stagflation as a you know more likely outcome. Well, what did we see for a lot of 2023, we saw portfolios that sort of, you know, were positioned in that direction that suggested that they were going to outperform in or, or, you know, defend against a stagflationary kind of environment. Well, we sort of saw the opposite in 2023, where now the market is pricing in soft landing and no surprise, we're starting to see portfolios, you know, kind of drift into that direction where now a greater share of them are sort of positioned in that soft landing camp. Yeah, I think strategic investors, um, on the other hand, might be less likely to be performance chasing, more likely looking to allocate away from what's done really well, particularly U.S. large cap um, or, you know, even more specifically, large cap growth. So for some, that might just be a rebalance back to targets. Um, For others, you might see a strategic allocation change to look for alternatives to U.S. large cap. I haven't really seen a lot of consensus forming around one singular area where that capital would be deployed. But, you know, you could see institutional investors take a closer look at small cap, maybe international equity on account of the more favorable valuations, or perhaps you see folks de-risk into things like long-short equity, options-based equity, or even fixed income. And of course, private markets continue to get a lot of attention. Yeah, on the topic of private markets, last time we looked at institutional trends, there was a lot of discussion around private assets. I mean, obviously, the higher return potential is is generally attractive for institutions with longer time horizons who can typically weather the you know illiquidity better than uh, some other types of investors. Are we still seeing that same interest in the private side, given the broad recovery you've seen in public assets this last year? One area that continues to see a lot of attention is private debt which can include direct lending, distressed debt, real asset debt, and more. And this is a trend that really goes all the way back to the GFC era, when new regulations came out on banks, created new lending opportunities for non-banks to come in and fill the gap, essentially. But it feels like it's picked up a bit more over the past few years. Looking at Natixis's 2024 global survey of institutional investors, 45% of respondents indicated that they plan to add to private debt, and only 12% of respondents Uh, saying that they plan to reduce their allocations. This 33% net difference was the largest of any alternatives asset class. On top of that, we see evidence that institutions have not even deployed enough capital to achieve their existing asset allocation policy targets. Investment published some pretty interesting data on public funds that indicated that at June 30th, 2023, over $10 billion in net flows to private debt would have been required to match aggregate actual holdings with aggregate asset allocation policy targets. And this was, again, the highest of any alternative or real asset category. That stands in stark contrast to private equity, on the other hand, which required over $80 billion in net outflows to match actual with policy. 
Basically, this means that there's continued momentum for private debt mandates, both from existing capital and policy targets and also future capital. So that, that's an interesting trend to me. And, you know, what strikes me is that, you know, a lot of these institutional investors for the last 10 years have really existed in a extremely low interest rate environment where public fixed income, you know, wasn't really driving returns. And it was probably hard to meet your policy goals by uh, simply investing in that. Do you think that persistence for the demand for um, private debt persists in this environment? Or is that does that change going forward, given that you can now, you know, maybe get closer to some of your policy goals investing on the public side of fixed income? Yeah, consider endowments or pensions needing to hit a 7.5% long-term return target. A few years ago, probably would have looked like you needed to lean into public and private equity in order to achieve that. But after this reset that we've gone through over the past couple of years, you're seeing a lot of credit-oriented strategies now capable of getting you there. So while there have definitely been investors who have shifted from fixed income to private credit and essentially just took on the illiquidity premium, some of this more recent interest might be understood through a risk management lens. You could have plans investing in private debt as they reduce their public equity or carving out some of their private equity allocation to do private debt. You know, one would think that a well-managed, diversified private debt program should be able to hit or exceed 7.5% pretty easily. The key is then just building out a durable portfolio of strategies that can minimize losses in a more pronounced default cycle. And you know, as I said, given a lot of the growth in the industry happened after the GFC, Many strategies haven't really ever had to navigate something like that, that really more pronounced default cycle. Clearly, we've seen rates move quite a bit over the past few years, and, and 2023 is obviously no exception. I'm curious how that relates to uh, the discount rate. I mean, the fact that the discount rate that these plans are using to sort of you know value their liabilities continues to change in this environment. Has that impacted uh, you know meaningfully the funded status of plans that are trying to manage the long-term liabilities in this environment? One of the data series that we've occasionally referenced in this forum is the FTSE AA Above Median Pension Discount Curve, which basically looks at high-quality corporate bond yields across varying maturities. Um, it's a pretty good proxy for discount rates used by corporate-defined benefit plans. Um, higher long-duration corporate yields typically means higher discount rates, lower liability values, and higher funded status. So if you go back to October 31st of 2023, this index was at 6.25% for a discount rate proxy. That's a post-GFC high. Um, that had liability values down nearly 11% on, uh, on the year at, uh, to that point in time, and funded status well above 100%. So even though at that point in time, the market was under a lot of stress and you know fixed income was selling off, it was ironically a great backdrop for corporate plans because their liability values were, were falling. Uh, well, as we've discussed, the last two months of the year saw a tremendous rates rally. And this discount rate dropped 120 basis points in those two months to 5.06, actually lower than it had been to start the year. So it was a pretty wild ride for corporate plans in discount rate terms, setting record highs one month and free-falling two months later. But in asset liability terms, it appears to have been surprisingly smooth. The funded status of the 100 largest U.S. corporate-defined benefit plans actually rose slightly on the year, ending 2023 at 102.1%. Liability values rose roughly 20% in the last two months of the year, so that smooth funded status suggests assets likely increased around the same. As we've said earlier, it was an environment where stocks and bonds both did extremely well at the same time. 
No discussion on institutional investors would be complete without mentioning that uh, IBM recently announced they are reopening their defined benefit pension plan as of January 2024. Uh, they're using this to replace the company match that they were making in the 401k. Uh, previously, IBM had closed this pension plan back in 2005 and, and froze it to new investments in 2008. Uh, this is obviously not the trend we've seen for the last 20 years where DB plans have basically been disappearing and, and, and a large part have been supplanted by DC plans like 401ks. Um, this is really interesting to me for a couple of reasons. I've always thought that corporate pension plan sponsors were in an asymmetric risk profile where downside outcomes really hurt and upside didn't help. Reason being, there was a fairly punitive excise tax on surplus funds if you were going to be terminating your plan. You've essentially taken tax deductions to make contributions along the way, um, but so the government's going to try to claw some of that back if it's not used for pension benefits. I actually had a client a number of years ago that had surplus funds and decided to increase benefits for employees when they terminated the plan, as opposed to recognizing the gains and paying the tax. But um, in doing this move, the plan won't have minimum required contributions given that they find themselves in a surplus position, right? So... The company match in the 401k plan for IBM is being replaced by this new benefit. So they're probably going to be able to offset retirement contribution costs for a period of time, maybe a few years. It really feels like a win-win. Good for the company, save some money over the next few years, and good for the employees to get that DB plan benefit. So, so given the circumstances that, that make this move make sense for IBM, do you think this is more of an isolated case or, or something that might indicate a, a new chapter in uh, you know DB plan growth? With IBM, we have a really large DB plan, $25 billion or so in assets, a deep surplus, over $3 billion in, in surplus. So it could be that rare case of a you know century-old company still doing some cutting-edge stuff that can continue to attract employees willing to spend you know, 15, 20-year careers there. So perhaps the stable benefit from the reopened DB plan is a nice perk that helped them with recruiting. Over the last 20 years, we've seen companies closing, freezing, and terminating plans. So this sort of flies in the face of that. Um, just the other day, 3M announced that they were freezing their pension plan to eliminate future accruals. So to me, it's probably not the case that this is a start of a DB renaissance, but more of an interesting confluence of events that led to a dynamic that'll be more the exception than the rule. Um, maybe we'll see a small number of other plans in similar situations follow suit, or maybe we'll just see the asset allocation impact of plans Maybe just a little bit more interested in funded status upside, knowing that there could be ways to monetize it down the road to, to benefit their employees. So that could mean glide paths that maintain some degree of return-seeking assets, even upon achieving surplus levels of funded status, rather than just being focused on completely locking down risk once you get to that point. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, well, that concludes our discussion on trends impacting institutional investors. For more of our research and investment insights, visit our website, natixisimsolutions.com. And as always, feel free to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or for customized insights tailored to your specific portfolio. On behalf of the Portfolio Analysis and Consulting Team at Natixis Investment Manager Solutions, thank you for continued partnership, and thanks for listening. Important information. As of January 18, 2024, this material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed may change based on market and other conditions. Investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Investment risk exists with equity, fixed income, international and emerging markets. Additionally, alternative investments, including managed futures, can involve a higher degree of risk and may not be suitable for all investors. There is no assurance that any investment will meet its performance objectives or the
that losses will be avoided. This document may contain references to copyrights, indexes and trademarks that may not be registered in all jurisdictions. Third-party registrations are the property of their respective owners and are not affiliated with Natixis Investment Managers or any of its related or affiliated companies. Collectively Natixis, such third-party owners do not sponsor, endorse or participate in the provision of any Natixis services, funds or other financial products. S&P 500 Index is a widely recognized measure of U.S. stock market performance. It is an unmanaged index of 500 common stocks chosen for market size, liquidity, and industry group representation, among other factors. It also measures the performance of the large-cap segment of the U.S equities market. Natixis Investment Managers Global Survey of Institutional Investors conducted by Core Data Research in October and November, 2023. Survey participants included 500 institutional investors in 27 countries throughout North America, Latin America, the United Kingdom, Continental Europe, Asia and the Middle East. Indexes are not investments, do not incur fees and expenses and are not professionally managed. It is not possible to invest directly in an index. Illiquidity premium, compensation paid to an investor for owning assets that are not highly liquid. Natixis Advisors, LLC provides advisory services through its division Natixis Investment Manager Solutions. Advisory services are generally provided with the assistance of model portfolio providers, some of which are affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers, LLC. Natixis Advisors, LLC does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax or legal professional prior to making any investment decision at Solutions.com. Member SIPC, POD 197 February, 2024, Ad Tracks, 6224890, 1, 1, Expiration Date, January 31, 2025.